What is going on, fellow filmmakers and creatives? Welcome to another episode of the Inner Circle Podcast. But before we kick it off, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Brendan Sweeney, Filmmakers Academy member and host of Finding the Frame. And I just want to talk to you about the annual spring sale that we are currently running over at our platform. Are you ready to elevate your craft to new heights? Dive into a community where inspiration meets guidance, where camaraderie fuels creativity? Well, picture this. We have monthly virtual group coaching sessions, network events that spark collaborations, and fresh educational content lighting up your screen monthly. That's what awaits you as an annual all-access member. And guess what? Your journey starts now with an exclusive offer. Snag $150 off your first year when you use promo code ARMCAR150 at checkout. It's our way of saying welcome to the family. So why wait? Join us today and unlock the ultimate resource hub for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers everywhere. And did I let you know that we just dropped our recent masterclass, Filmotechnic Camera Car Masterclass, where Shane Hurlbut ASC and his camera crew of working professionals go inside the arm car, break down what it's like to be a cinematographer, getting that confidence to be able to utilize this specialty tool to get the shot. We hope to see you in the family. We want to see you on the platform. Let's join the community, Arm Car 150. Check the show notes for the link and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the April 2017 podcast. Shane and I are very excited to be with you together again this month and hope that you are enjoying your spring. This is going to be an exciting podcast because Shane is going to answer your questions about cinematography, the movie, shots, coverage, you name it. We're going to dive right into cinematography. As always, please remember to submit new questions that come up for you, both in lifestyle, in filmmaking, We are starting to build out our filmmaker lifestyle section, and we're very excited about that. So please don't forget those fun lifestyle questions, because I know that there are a lot of those out there. Okay, diving in. Question number one. Hi, Shane. Could you please explain why you use the movie over the Steadicam? I think that the movie is marketed toward indie slash low budget filmmakers who can't operate or afford a real Steadicam. I know the movie is is great for catch and release moments, transfers, and fun gags, but by the time that you get into the Dr. Octopus arms or the exoskeletons, isn't it just simpler to use a Steadicam? Thanks for answering all of our questions. Hello, everyone. Very excited to be able to do this podcast with Lydia. We were really loving the vibe and... uh, kind of the flow of what we, of this new format. And so let's get at it. This is a great question. I get this question almost once or twice a day. The Steadicam is an amazing piece of machinery, but it can do five to 10 things really well. The Movi is an amazing device that can do 190 things really well. So when you're thinking about the way you have to set up your camera package and what you're going to need to have the most versatility to be able to, when the shit hits the fan and you have to kind of pull a a new way to shoot a scene, you know, out of your ass, you, (laughs) you have to have the the right tools and the movie seemed to be that tool for me on fathers and daughters was the first movie that I used the movie. And this was before the exoskeleton. This was before the, the Clausen slingshot. It was before all the latest and greatest technology that has happened on the movie. And I used that not for gags, not for pass-offs, not for handoffs. It was, of course, we did that, but the main reason for the movie was to be one with the actor. 
And Amanda Seyfried's character, who it was her story and her memory of what it was like when she was a kid, um, and she really didn't have a foundation. And I loved the energy of the movie. It had a unique energy that wasn't handheld, that wasn't, you know, a uh, moving head, uh, you know, where you're kind of moving around. It wasn't a steady cam. It was a unique energy. And it, and the way we tried to shoot it was the camera never really got comfortable. So it just felt like, Amanda's Seyfried's foundation was more built on sand than brick and mortar. Now, this was the early days of the movie, and we really didn't have all the latest and greatest technology. So we ended up going to the Steadicam uh, for a, a good amount of shots because we did not have the support. All we had was a ready rig, and the ready rig you couldn't really walk with, but you could slide left and right, but you really couldn't move in and out. But now with the Kloss and the exoskeleton and the, the, the ready rig style of, of devices, you're able to move effortlessly. And the, the big aha moment for me as a cinematographer was completely flipping the way we shoot movies and shoot coverage and shoot scenes, the way we block them the way we rehearse them. Because in the day, and I call it legacy mode, you had it on a dolly, you laid some dolly board down, you put a slider on, and the dolly grip and the operator kind of moved and slid. And it was something where you had to have, you know, two or three individuals all moving as a wonderful unit. And it's incredible. I've made many movies like this. But with the movie, it's just one individual moving that device. And you can set up in very minimal time and you move very much one with the actor. And on Badlands is when we really got it working incredibly well, uh, where the actors just came up to me and they're like saying, Shane, I've never seen a camera system and, and a team move with us. I, we just feel like we can so m much more be alive with the performance and we feel like you move with us. And, and if there's something where I feel like I got to go to her, but I maybe didn't do it in the rehearsal, you can go. And it was really, um, it created a, a very unique atmosphere to get the best emotional performance out of the actors, as well as the best camera emotion out of us as well. I'm no cinematographer, as you all know, but having lived with Shane for nearly 30 years, it's really exciting when you have a tool that allows intimacy in a different way for storytelling. And that's really what I've seen with Shane Hughes with this movie and Chris Hare, his his operator, really get intimate, have fun. And if you have an actor that's naked or in a compromising position or something where they're just not as comfortable, I think not having a team of people going in there um, or if they have to do a really difficult emotional performance and they're you know, it, it's tough to get to for them. Again, the fewer, the better in a lot of these things. And I think it just, as Shane said, gives you incredible flexibility. And it's fun when you have a new device to be able to figure out and create. And I think that this is not an indie or low budget filmmakers tool. It's a tool for all levels of production. And I think we tend to, when something costs is so inexpensive, it can't possibly be any good, is always been the mentality in the film business. So it's like, I think it's very uh, important for you to really understand that this is a tool that is on every one of my camera trucks and I have three of them. So it's like I have one for A camera, one for B camera and one for second unit to be able to take out because 
Not only can it move with the actors, it can also be a remote head that we mount uh, on camera cars, on other, you know, on the, the actors' cars. It can be a remote head to slap on a crane, and immediately you've turned it, this thing into a gyro-stabilized device. I remember on Fathers and Daughters, we had this amazing shot where we were over the head top down and we were sliding over all these different chairs, these rows of chairs, and we came on Russell Crowe signing these books. Now, we had a fixed arm crane, so we couldn't afford a techno crane. It was 20 feet long. We had it up you know, top down. Now, the track, we couldn't have track on the ground because we would see it. So we did it old school where we literally Hollywooded the chairs out as we pushed the, as this Camtech remote head and little dolly, uh, I mean, Camtech uh, jib arm and, 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 Dolly on the carpet that was at the location, and that camera looked like it was absolutely rock solid. And we're pushing it and pushing it, and we got uh, you know set decorators in there pulling the chairs out as we slide it all the way as a perfect top down as Russell Crowe is signing his books. This is the ability of this amazing device on adventures. The director wanted this sweeping crane shot that was in a sunflower field. And we, he wanted a 50 foot techno. He wanted it flying across the, the sunflowers. And then our actor, Andy Lau was going to get out and he was going to walk right up to the camera and uh, settle in a close up. Now we asked the farmer, if we could move a 50-foot techno out into his sunflower field. And he said, absolutely not. So I said, okay, how about we put the movie on a sky-high roller? And uh, so we flipped it upside down and we put it in overslung mode and we put it on this stand and we had two grips there. So as the car started blasting down the road, we started to lower the movie, just like it would be on a crane. And as one stand completed, one riser completed its its path, the, he had the other riser loose and another grip started doing that one. And we boomed down perfectly. And just as Andy Lau got right into his close-up, we landed at that, that shot. So again, this device has so many possibilities and to, to be able to react to things that get thrown uh, your way that you thought, hey, we'll just put a techno crane out there and sure, we're buying the field. Well, of course, we couldn't afford to buy the field. We couldn't afford to buy all the sunflowers we were going to destroy. So we had to go with it. And this having this tool and the ability to turn it into this remote head that can absolutely do almost anything possible. You know, we were mounted it on this scooter and we did all this immersive high speed action uh, on the car chase in Khan and not having the ability of this head and having to bring in a very expensive head and then having to bring in a technician along with it, flying them to Khan, you know, is probably a twenty to thirty thousand dollar expense when it's all said and done. And we were able to do it for under $1,500. And I just like to say, I think that it's easy to get stuck in a mindset as a cinematographer of, well, I use this tool for this particular type of shot. And when we're doing that, we need this camera. It's You really need to look at your mindset when you are checking yourself in creativity, because we set up these rules and blockades in our minds, or this is the way I've always done it. And I think what's absolutely critical to stay fresh and exciting and unique is to constantly reinvent the way that you're doing things and not get stuck in with your own rules. So you get in your own way. So just a you know, this gets to my lifestyle piece a little bit. Got to squeak it in where I can. (laughs) 
But you have to really be aware of um, how you're limiting yourself in your own thinking. So just take a peek at that for yourselves and let us know what comes up. All right, question number two, and this is a little bit of a long one, so bear with me, okay? Hi, Shane. Firstly, for creating the best online school possible for filmmaking. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was very kind. My question was sparked after my experience on set yesterday. It was a one-day shoot. I spent two weeks preparing every shot, angle, setup, sequence, and micro-merged every detail with computer-drawn diagrams, blocks, throughs, block throughs, and camera placement after watching yours, and most of these were to be shot on a Ronin. Our Ronin crapped itself while setting up for the day, (laughs) nearly leaving me in tears. All that hard work and mental preparation went out the window right before my very eyes as the Ronin failed to calibrate, sitting there like a dead piece of equipment. Okay, I just have to stop the question there because I think we can all relate to that. Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) Long story short. After block through the scene, after blocking through the scene, my DP knew how deflated I was and offered great angles and camera placement, dolly shots, and dynamics for each setup we endured through. He was amazing. At the end of the day, I said to him, today, I felt like you were part director, and I'm sorry that you had to design shots for me. He answered with, it's my job to offer the director how to shoot a sequence. So I think... I think he also went on to add that, you know, is this the way it usually works? Like uh, if you're a director, does your DP help set up the shots and how much input uh, does the director have in this scenario? Well, I have to say collaboration is the best possible situation. And it is amazing that you had all this stuff as a director uh, planned out and set up and all that stuff. It's something that you also want to try and do with your director of photography. I have a lot of um, discussions. We have a whole pre-production planning section of that's coming in the inner circle. You got the first one um, recently breaking down your script where you're really collaborating director and the DP production design, hair, makeup, wardrobe, all the teams are getting together to be able to pull off the director's vision. Right. And it's, I feel it's my job as a director of photography to come up with as many of the setups as possible. And I've worked with um, a lot of directors in many different ways. There's directors that just direct the actors. They, they just want to be focused on the actors and they don't have a necessary way that they want to be able to cover the scene. That's my job. There's other directors that want to be very focused on the actors as well as being very focused on the camera language. And the camera language and camera angles are kind of two different things. Camera language is how it's going to make you feel. How, how does the director want that audience to feel? And the camera and the lighting can help in that. I always go back to Roger Deakins. He says that he will never be a look at me, look at me cinematographer. He is there for story assist. And he is my number one mentor. And I think that is the way I love to roll out as well. And it's not cutting you off at the knees at all. It's not making you a less of a director of photography. It's, it's making you somebody that reads the story and wants to get the best out of the actor's performance and developing the characters through the right use of lens language, the right use of lighting techniques to create that mood and tone that takes their emotion being the characters and their performance higher. So, you know, that being said, that's, you know, a a very, 
and on fathers and daughters, it was very uh, symbiotic relationship where Gabrielli and I had, uh, where he really had a lens language down or, or a you know a, a camera language that he really wanted it to flow with, and it made my job incredibly easy to be able to unite all the teams because he had literally systematically described the camera language of the film in every line embedded in the script. So it really helped the whole team get quickly up to speed and deliver uh, the best possible, you know, from all departments. Now, you have something to say, Lydia? I just wanted to say, sorry, going back to the Roger Deacon's comment, that I think it's much more different to tease out and be a subtle camera individual um, in terms of cinematography rather than to be very overt and in people's faces. So if you look at masters of the craft, the the true masters are always very, very subtle and they don't they don't hit you in the face with their cinematography, in my opinion. So I think to to get subtle takes more skill and finesse, and that's what makes Rogers so talented, and you, in my opinion. Um, and so I just wanted to say that I also think you were you were explaining different um, pick up with your thought of different ways that you work with directors because that's interesting. Yeah, you bet. Um, when I worked with Scotty Waugh on Need for Speed and Act of Valor. It was a very collaborative experience. Like we would sit down and do the shot list together. We would talk through what we wanted the audience to feel, how we wanted the audience to, when we wanted peaks, when we wanted valleys, if it was standard, you know, type of coverage or was it going to be very immersive and point of view. So we kind of developed that whole film completely together and then created these very detailed shot lists that we would hand out to the crew every day. Uh, Need for Speed was a, a perfect example of that. Now, getting back to your question of you planning it all out just like I did, well, I want to say huge kudos and a big hand clap. Let's do a tennis clap to you because that's what you want to do. Pre-production is your biggest investment in pulling off the vision of the film. And when you have it all planned out, and even if that piece of machinery crapped out, first off, don't use a Ronin. Stay with a movie. Shameless plug. No, just kidding. Um, but, uh, you know, you, wanna, you want to have that plan because when Mother Nature... Or Murphy's Law just kicks you right in the face. Which it will. Which it will almost every single day. You have the structure and the foundation to, okay, this is what we were going to do. We were going to move over here and da-da-da-da-da and all this kind of stuff. But now you just turn it into a dolly. Now, does it take a little longer to lay the track and all that stuff? Absolutely. But the plan was in place. You just had to punt. And punting is where this separates the men to, from the boys. Or the ladies from the girls. Correct. Thank you, Lydia. Sexist. <laughs> and the reason being is your punt has to be better than the plan that took you two, four, six, eight, ten, twenty-five weeks to come up with. And that's where thinking on your feet, common sense, really uh, having those the those the team around you to then help pull this off. And it's I think directors think that believe me, I know ultimately every single Decision is yours every single, you're responsible for everything. But I think that's really, as Shane was saying, kudos to your DP for not panicking, first of all, and for really in that moment coming up with some great alternative shots, suggestions, angles, whatever it was that your DP did to save that day. Because when there's a crisis, I think you really see creativity shine. And if if you can just maintain the, okay, wow, this is going really 
differently than we anticipated, and I'm just essentially throwing everything out the window. But what can we capture given what we've, you know, the cards that we've given, i.e. Ronan, you know, not working. And I think sometimes, and I know this is really hard to believe, but sometimes things do happen for a reason in that moment. And it would take you a completely different direction than you ever would have thought of. And it could be great. Now, it doesn't feel great, but the creativity that comes out of it could be great. Absolutely. And it gets back to your uh, question of like, you know, you being able to plan all this stuff out. Well, that planning out gave you the foundation to be able to then quickly move right into, you know, the, the, the director of photography saying, okay, you wanted to move the Ronin from, you know, A to B. Well, we're just going to do that on the dolly. And you wanted the Ronin to be able to move over the shoulder and push in with them. Well, we'll do that on the dolly. You know, it's like all these things uh, he's able to work out. And I have to say that it's very important for you to have this foundation. And the onset series that's happening uh, very soon coming up is uh, on... Uh, it's the one that deals with diffusing the sun and negative fill. And the reason I bring that one up is because the planning was we were going to shoot that sequence on with the path of the sun. So we'd shoot one direction when it was backlit. We'd shoot another direction when it was backlit. And we would uh, not shoot them in the heat of noon sun. Well, that plan got kiboshed, you know, right off the bat because we got all of a sudden thrown a curveball where we were told we had to be taillights at seven o'clock, which means we were huge. We had we were shooting all over this location. So that means we had to wrap at five. Well, we're in the summertime of New Orleans, so the sun doesn't even set till 830. So it's like, you see where we're at here? I'm not going to be getting backlit. I'm not going to be shooting uh, the exact times that I wanted to shoot. Uh, this was something that was scheduled with the AD perfectly, but then we were thrown the schedule curveball as well as Mother Nature coming in with a massive storm system and having to shut all generators and all production down while we dove into the houses for as safety. We, <laughs> for safety as we had lightning strikes, you know, within, you know, 400 yards of us. So these are kind of the curveballs that happen and we were ready for it. I had asked my uh, key grip to rig the possibility if that happened uh, that we would have to shoot at high noon to rig some points up in the trees so he was able to fly this light grid cloth half grid up into the trees. He created like a 20 by 100 path for them to walk in the high noon sun and uh, we were able to diffuse the light beautifully on their faces and just make it work perfectly. But these are the kind of plans that need to be uh, done in pre-production. So when Mother Nature and uh, Murphy's Law kicks you in the face, you have the plan B. I just have a funny story to share with you because Shane and I are obsessed with the show Chef's Table. And um, in that show, it showed the sous chef <laughs> dropping a dessert just before it was to be served. And the guy wanted to die because he smashed this gorgeous, what was the dish? Lemon it tart. It was a lemon tart and the thing looked like hell. I mean, it was just oozing out, disgusting. And the chef was so genius that he said, wait a second, let's do that. And let's make something of it. Okay. So he called it, oops, I dropped the lemon tart. And that's what they ended up doing. They would make the lemon tart. They would break the thing in half and it would ooze out all over the plate. And they would put some beautiful uh, plate garnishes, uh, garnishes and everything. So it looked like it splayed across there and exploded. And all of a sudden they had uh, a magical new dish. And that's all out of uh, just great creative ingenuity and thinking on your feet. 
All right. What's the next question? All right. Next question. So this question, let's see, we don't have a person. Okay. Hello. I would love to learn if there is a rule of thumb for getting proper scene coverage. For instance, within a scene, at the minimum capture, these shots, etc. I know there isn't a cookie cutter answer for any scene, but some basics about scene coverage would be wonderful. Thank you. I love the inner circle. Well, we love having you, whoever sent this question in. <laughs> All right. There, there's kind of a cookie cutter answer. I mean, you know, because there is basic coverage that you want to get to cover a scene. Let's say there's two people that are sitting at a table. Um, let's just talk about that coverage for a minute. You would want a wide shot to establish where the people are. And in that wide shot, you would want to see either them already being there or they meet each other or whatever the case may be. Now, depending on how you frame that shot, you can feel like they're the center of attention or you can put them off to one side or the other. And that weight will will say something uh, for the characters. Uh, you can give them a lot of foot room where they don't have much uh, headroom. So, you know, maybe what they're talking about is really kind of, you know, creates this kind of mood that's pushing down the characters, pushing them, you know, so they feel very, like they're very weighted. There's also where you give them a lot of headroom. And by giving them a lot of headroom, they have, you know, like this thoughts. So this, it's got a basically idea space for your characters. So there's many ways to kind of take a wide shot and frame it. And it tells you a different camera motion. Then there is what I call a 50-50. And that 50-50 is a profile shot where you see each person on the left and right side of frame. And I do this, uh, depending on how close they are, I do it with probably two lens sizes. I'll do it with, let's say, uh, well, depending on the room's restricted elements, you always want to feel like you're in a room, even though you have a door. Like, say you have a doorway that you could get back and feel longer lens and compress the background, and your camera is outside of the physical room that these people are uh, doing the scene in, you're going to feel like you're outside the room. So you always want to, you can keep the dolly and your sticks and all the paraphernalia that's behind the camera outside of the room, like by using a door, but that lens has to be within the physical structure of that room. So it feels like you're still in it. Now, that 50-50, we, we could do, let's say the room is 20 feet long and 15 feet wide. So maybe we could get a nice wider 50-50 with a 27 mil, and then we could pop in for a 50 millimeter, and that would get us our uh, a tighter, you know, 50-50, where we're just seeing the two actors in profile. And I also like to, on these scenes, I run cross coverage a lot of times. So if I have a 50-50 that's dead center, the on the gap in between the two actors, I'll put a second camera off to the left or off to the right that then gets a beautiful profile, but just gets the second eye on like a hundred millimeter or a 135. So we're able to cut in on a, a unique profile angle. And that's like so what I would do. So I, I do my wide shot first, then I jump into this 50-50 coverage and we do the scene one or two times with the 27 mil or a 24 mil, whatever your wide 50-50 is and a 50 mil. And when I go from a 50 mil, I'm also shooting this 100 mil or 135 millimeter uh, on the tight profile shots. Then I would move around to uh, getting over the shoulders. Now, over the shoulders is a very unique way to bring your actors together or blow them apart. And we did it in Crazy Beautiful where I wanted to subtly show Jay Hernandez and Kirsten Dunst falling in love with each other. And we did it by the over the shoulders. We had a huge gap when they first met each other. And as they slowly in, fell in love, as they slowly fell in love, this gap 
slowly decreased to the point where each one of them were on top of each other. Like her over the shoulder and her face was over like a third of Jay's face. And that subtle nuance throughout the whole movie really we're hoping that the audience will feel it. They won't know what they're feeling, but they're going to feel it. And out of that, we then, uh, so that's a way to show uh, falling in love. Uh, another way to kind of create, you know, like the people really don't like each other is to really shoot a an over-the-shoulder that has this big gap in between them and then never go in for tight over-the-shoulders. Just go in for singles. And those, anytime people are enemies or, you know, really not associated with each other, I don't like to do over-the-shoulder coverage at all. Uh, I like to show that gap. I have a question on waist-deep and car sequences or uh, deadfall. So what do you do? Because not being the cinematography and cinematographer in the group, what do you do in a car? Like, how do you do that? Well, in the car sequence, that was a I, I did that kind of Tyrese and the girl them. Waist yeah. And waist deep. I did them kind of starting to fall for each other. Uh, by shooting the when they were first starting and hooking up, uh, we shot with much wider lenses uh, in the car. So th he was big in the foreground, but she was very far away. Uh, and then she would be big in the foreground and he was very far away. So it really showed the depth of just them being oh, pushed away from each other. And then as they slowly started to hit all these banks and they really started to really be in the groove, that lens coverage started to get tighter and tighter and tighter. And the overs started to become more on top of each other, on top of each other. And it really started to work beautifully uh, with them in the car. So the this is kind of, I would say, if you had to break down a scene and just like every scene and, you know, and uh, let's say every movie has these type of scenes. You have two people talking to each other. Uh, it can be very intimate. It can be very distant. But this is kind of a cookie cutter approach on the lenses. Now, the over the shoulders, let's talk about the over the shoulder focal lengths. The over-the-shoulder focal lengths, you can be very intimate and with them. So that's going to be a wider lens pushed in. So let's say a 35 would be a good lens for that. So you're really close to the individual. So it feels very intimate with what they're saying. Or you can back up and be on a, like a 50 millimeter and feel like, okay, they're both, you know, you're, you're still in it. But you are, but it's a little more, let's say, I wouldn't say voyeuristic. Uh, it's just a great lens to do over the shoulders on. And then you could go back as radical on a hundred or a 75 mil and get a wider over the shoulder. And that is going to be very voyeuristic. And that's going to feel like you're you know, looking from the outside and you're wanted to distance uh, your audience from these characters. And that can say something uh, emotionally as well. Um, now going in for the tight over the shoulder, I would then go on a 75 mil or a hundred millimeter. Those are my favorite uh, lenses for over the shoulders. Uh, so you get a beautiful out of focus shoulder and or hunk of their, you know, right side or left side of their ear. And, and then you have a, a wonderful, um, you know, close up on the actor uh, for the performance. So that's kind of a breakdown of what um, a cookie cutter scenario would be. But each one of them has a different kind of emotional impact. So it's whether you want to be very close to somebody or very far away, if you want to see them, if they're together as a team. Uh, so you want to narrow that gap uh, that you have between the over the shoulder. If they are not uh, a team and they're like, uh, uh, 
you know, they don't like each other, then you would want to go with, you'd want to go with uh, a, a way to just go cleans and not include the individual so they don't feel like they're, they're, they're uh, enemies. Uh, so you want that enemy kind of feel so you wouldn't put the two of them in a shot other than a distant 50-50 or, you know, something that, that doesn't show them together. Uh, in the same frame. So everything ultimately depends on the script, depends on the feel that you're looking for, depends on the size of the room, depends on what gear you have. There's a lot of personal choice involved in this too. And, um, you know, you just do whatever, you do as many options as you can given the situation that you have. Correct, Shane? Yes, absolutely. All right, next question. I love the person that ans- that asked this question because his name is Miles and my son's name is Miles and so there's always a soft spot soft spot in my heart Miles. I'm very excited. <laughs> Thank you very much for providing the opportunity to learn from a professional. As a film student, I have used many of your techniques in lighting and have never been let down with the results. This question is about shooting for coverage. I recently shot a short film where this was a bone of contention as it seemed to be just done for quote-unquote safety's sake. As the director on the project, I felt that it was adding so much time to the production. I was also the producer, but my lack of experience prevented me from kiboshing what the more experienced DP wanted to do. While I could appreciate the options this provided in the edit, I really just wanted the shots on the shot list. Is shooting for coverage a practice you advocate or something you avoid if given the option? Thanks again for your insights and jump-starting our collective knowledge by sharing your experience. Miles. Yeah, this is a good one. Okay, what I would have to say would be this. The shooting for coverage, I've had a lot of different situations with this. Let's take fathers and daughters, for example where Gabriel Muccino would come into a scene and we would shoot the sequence, sometimes with two and three cameras, and I would look at his shot list and see that there's no close-up coverage. I would also look at his shot list and there was no kind of over-the-shoulder or close-up coverage of, of, you know, a couple points there. And I would say, you know, are we all good for this? And he goes, yes, I, this is the way I want it to feel. And he was all about not cutting so much. And I think in the world of this uh, new generation, everyone wants to cut, 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 cut. And Gabrielli did not want that. He wanted you to feel the room. He wanted you to feel their physical the physical aspects of them inside that room and their hand movements and their 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 quirks or body language that led up to a bigger aha moment for the character than being in on a rock and close up where you lost a lot of those subtleties so we would come in and shoot these sequences and we would be done in 8 hours and that is all he wanted and he was very happy with that. Now you have smash cut to Into the Badlands, where the um, where the directors as well as the as well as the showrunners wanted a lot of close ups. Uh, they loved close ups, and they wanted to get in as close as possible because on. A big screen, like a movie theater screen, you know, you're really uh, a medium shot is is big, right? And when you go in for extreme close-ups, that is a you're, that's a statement uh, because that head is thirty feet tall and forty or fifty feet wide sometimes. But on a television screen, depending on people are watching on their iPhones or a 15-inch laptop or a 60-inch plasma in their home, the close-up is a big deal in television. So we did a lot of inserts. 
so we could tell the audience what that we wanted them to look at. And we did a lot of close-ups and a lot of extreme close-ups. So this was, and it wasn't necessarily shooting for coverage. It was what that medium required. So your story is going to tell you what type of coverage you're going to need. Okay, Shane, but let's get to the more difficult question that Miles is asking here, uh, because this is a really interesting one. So he has an experienced DP, and he is a budding director. So does he listen to what his DP is telling him to do in terms of the coverage, or does he ignore the DP and just do what he wants to get on a shot list? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. This goes back to the question. Our first question we said today uh, that we talked about was this is a collaboration in the best way possible. So these are conversations that hopefully you've already had with your director of photography and you've kind of talked through the sequence. And if that's not able to happen, it's something that happens once you've blocked the scene. Uh, something that I do is, is, you know, we come in, we block the scene with our actors and we have our script supervisor there and we talk through the scene and then we, you know, we see the scene with the actors and the script supervisor. Then we bring in the whole team. We bring in my operators. I bring in my first assistants. We bring in the art director, our production design, hair, makeup, wardrobe, and my uh, second ACs to put marks down. And then this is where we start to mark the actors. We start to break it down technically of where they go, what they're going to be doing, and all that stuff. Now, once we have that... We now go into the way that uh, we should cover it. And if you haven't already put together a shot list, then we work with the script supervisor and we sit down and I also have my operators there as well. And we talk through the coverage and how this should feel. And, uh, and that's a very important part of the creative process. Um, and there's going to be times where, you know, you listen to a scene and you watch the actors perform it. Now, on a page, it, on the page, it was going one direction. But when the actors got in there and delivered their performance, this was going a totally different direction. And you want to be able to embrace that. And you want to be able to acknowledge that it's gone a different direction. And maybe they didn't go as planned. They didn't stand where you wanted them when you were thinking about your shot list. And they went some other place. And, and that's where they wanted to be. And uh, by doing that, it really enables you to catch that lightning in bottle. And that's those serendipity moments where the actors in the blocking send you down a different uh, road than both the director or director of photography ever thought they would. And by doing that, it enables you to... Um, you know, really embrace that and uh, and capture it. So let's get back to your, your question. As a, a budding director, I would absolutely be listening to my director of photography um, on his or her suggestions. I have, in my career, I was brought in on the number of feature films that I've done, I would say 50% of them were first-time directors. And I was brought in to be able to be that experienced cinematographer uh, that's going to show his or her the ropes and make sure we get the right coverage so we don't have to go and do reshoots, that we don't have to go and go get additional photography after the edit's been put together. Uh, this is a, a studio really um, kind of uh, investing in the director of photography to make sure that he or she assists uh, the young director. Now, I think disagreements happen on set no matter what. And ultimately, the director 
you know, has uh, has the ultimate say. You could it's just a creative creative difference potentially between the DP and the director. And ultimately, the director has the say. But I do think it's very, very important um, as a director, this collaborative relationship with your cinematographer. And, and because they may be coming up with things that you hadn't thought of, and maybe you're going to appreciate that shot coverage in the edit where you didn't think you needed it, but then when you edited everything together, all of a sudden, oh, thank God that shot's there. So, so much changes in the edit bay, and this is something um, that Shane and I are really wanting to get more into, is the whole editorial piece. Agreed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, I, I have to say, Miles, that it is very important for you to try to have this discussion with your director of photography before it happens on the day. Now, what I have to say is I am not talking about the the conversation to be about exactly what shots we're doing, but the 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 lens language and the camera language that you are talking, you'll immediately he will he or she will immediately know whether you like a lot of coverage or you don't. And then you can, you will already have gotten that out. Like with Gabrielli, I could, the minute when I was talking with him, he goes, I don't want to overcut. I don't want to over coverage. I want this to be very simple. And I want the actors to act and, and really pound that emotional impact. Well, I mean, this is a conversation I had with him in pre-production. So I knew exactly not to suggest over coverage and not to go in and get close-ups and overs. And, you know, only when I would say, hey, do you think we need that close-up of the picture so we can really detail who this person is? And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's add that. But this is uh, this is a conversation that you should be having in pre-production uh, at so you can really figure out the camera and lens language. And, uh, you know, it's going to make on the day be so much faster. And uh, it's that unspoken language between the director and the director of photography that I remember Gabrielli saying this. He just said, I didn't even have to say anything anymore. After week one, we were so in sync that he didn't even have to mention I just was already doing exactly what he wanted. Okay, last thing I'm going to say on this, because you can tell that Shane and I really dig this question because there's so much depth. But um, this is where your intuition comes in as well. And this gets to the mindset piece, because Shane is an incredibly intuitive individual. And you need to be intuitive with your, you know, cinematographer and the cinematographer with you. Because if if you're really having great communication and listening to one another, you will be so far in each other's heads that it, it will be a non-issue. So, um, okay, we're on to our last question because I can't believe how fast time is going. And this one comes from... Francesco in Italy. We love Italy. Shane and I were just talking about how we want to go to Italy. I have been to Venice, but I have never been anywhere else in Italy and I need to go. So, dear Shane, first of all, I would like to thank you for sharing your experience and to be always so clear and precise in your answers. I've recently bought my first color meter and I'm trying to be more precise in terms of filters and colors on set. On my last project, I spent enough time metering every single lighting source on set as to be consistent as possible to achieve what I had in mind. I must confess that I'm still quite confused about the use of light balancing filters. First of all, which level of accuracy would you recommend in terms of Kelvins between the different sources? Should all the lighting sources have exactly the same temperature or is there a level that you consider acceptable? Quote unquote. Do you approach this aspect differently on film or on digital? About the filters, it seems to me, tell me if I'm wrong, that despite their name, eight, quarter, half, full, CTB, slash, CTO, slash, CTS, those filters add not proportional amount of degree Kelvins. In that sense, 
how do you not get lost and apply the right amount of gel? I also noticed that my color meter, which is a Minolta 3F, starts to give inaccurate readings when I apply different layers of filters, leaving me as blind as I would be without it. Sorry for the confusion and thanks in advance for your answer. I wish you all the best. All right, Francesco, this is a great question. All right, let's get down to it. So your first was which level of accuracy would you recommend in terms of Calvin's between the different sources? So with a color meter, I'm really not bringing that baby out as much as uh, you think I would. So you don't want to be so uh, immersed in the perfection of every single light being perfect. perfectly balanced. Uh, That's what I think is so exciting about this new age of cinematography, where we're mixing many colored sources. So, but if you have HMI lights and they are supposed to be replicating daylight, then you want each light to be around 5,600 Kelvin. So I, if let's say I had a 18K coming through a window and I had a 4K par uh, coming through another window and I had an M18 coming through another window, depending on how close these things were or just on the edge of frame, I would want all of those HMI sources to be balanced. They'd want to be very close within 50 to 100 degrees. Uh, well, let's say it's not degrees, sorry, 50 to 100 Kelvin uh, of 5,600. So the light feels consistent. Daylight is a specific color, right? 5,600 Kelvin. Now, if it's early morning, then you want to play. I love to play early morning as 3,800 Kelvin. Uh, and I like late afternoons to be 2,500 Kelvin. I find that early mornings are not as warm as late afternoons. And the reason being is late afternoons, you have all the dust and dirt and, and uh, pollution that's kicked up in the air. So sunsets used to usually are much warmer, uh, in tonality than, uh, mornings. So mornings, I always see a lot of green cyan uh, and uh, afternoon twilights and sunsets. I feel like they're really golden and rich uh, as well as the undertones are very purpley blue. So these are just, you know, what I uh, see with my eyes. So if you're going with tungsten light, then tungsten is around 3,200 Kelvin. And that is all at your discretion. Now, if you have lights that you want to all be the same color temp, then you would want to go around and make sure all those lights are are fairly close to, you know, within 100 to 200 Kelvin of each other. Um, I like a lot of warm light, so I go down into the 2200 to 2400 Kelvin all the time. Uh, that would, especially with my Batten lights, it's very rich and golden and just really feels alive. And, uh, and it creates a, a whole different kind of skin tone that I absolutely love. And so those are kind of your, where I really pull the color meter out is balancing and matching things. So if I have to make all my HMIs 5,600 Kelvin, then I'm making sure each one of those are matched as close as possible. If I have to, if I am keying somebody with a, let's say a 1K open face through a Chimera and, and that diffusion is warming up the light and I want to match that color temp of the light for the backlight or for the fill, then I would meter what that light is Calvin wise. And then I'd go around and match it. Um, if I was in a fluorescent scenario where I really couldn't control the CFLs in the ceiling or the cool white or warm white fluorescence that were in the ceiling, then I would then want to get my color meter out and find out what the green is in these fluorescence. And then I would take all my other lights and match that as well. So, um, and if you want to be able to do 
uh, warmer lights or colder lights within that scenario, you have to match the green on every light uh, to match what the cool whites or warm white fluorescents are. So that way, when you take your green out of the image, you have left with a very clean white or colder tonality that you've created. And this is all done by just matching what your color meter says with the overhead fluorescence. And I tend to pull this out all the time when using fluorescence because you're constantly having to match. Now, the new LED techno te technology, like, well, with the new LED technology, it's really given us the ability to react on our feet so beautifully. A sky panel can balance and adjust with green bias or magenta bias and warm and cool from 2,800 all the way up to 10,000 Kelvin. So you can match anything. And in Adventures, we had a very small window to shoot in an airport. And we could not go in there and change out all the lights and do all that because it was a working terminal. So what I did is I took my color meter and matched the CFLs that were coming in from the ceiling with my sky panels. And I put my sky panels on this big-ass Western dolly that had four sky panels on it, all in this big, long line of diffusion. And that became the key source as they walked through the terminal. So the lights that were in the ceiling, I could literally physically see uh, as I was pulling back. So those lights, we just couldn't turn off because it would look like, you know, they had lost power in the in the terminal, but we could overpower them and use what was coming from above as a fill source, as an ambient light within the room, and then bring in this beautifully balanced, by using my color meter, sky panels that came in and gave them a downside and, and gave it very cinematic feel. Okay. I know that there are a few other pieces of this question that I'm just going to revisit because, man, Francesco is putting you to the paces in this one. <laughs> yeah, what's the next one here? We're trying to remember this all. Okay, so we talked about the color temperature. Oh, this is interesting. Do you approach this differently on film or on digital um, with filtration? I think that we didn't answer that one yet. Right. So film tends to have the ability to create more shades of colors. So you don't have to necessarily be so specific like uh let's say a kino flow has like plus four of green well film won't even see that uh it just doesn't pick up that green but the digital sensor does so but then at the same time the film camera can create more shades of different colors. So when you are going for different tonalities within a frame, like warms and cools, you don't have to go so far. Uh, you know, you, you can, you can be 400 or 500 Calvin and that will show a very nice subtle uh, color shift where I find that with digital you have to be a little more extreme um, and I like how digital sensors really see different colors than film and I kind of embrace that so I will I will kind of and it's all on the monitor, right? Uh, to eye, you can't see it sometimes. You can light to eye, and then you can go over to the monitor, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, let's warm that up a little bit or cool that down. And that's how I love LED technology, because it's giving us the ability to react on our feet so much more quickly and not have to deal with all the gels you know, the CTBs, the CTOs, and the CTSs, because those just add waste and they're expensive and they add time where I can just whip over to an LED and change the color temperature in a matter of seconds. So let's just go to the, the third part of your question, which is um, you're getting confused and you're getting inaccurate readings and you've applied all these layers. And I mean, Here's the, the recipe for success. 
each gel manufacturer has a swatch. And there's some that make big swatches. And there's some that make the small swatches. Well, I have that in my pocket. And I just hold it right over the the uh, color temperature meters sensor, and I can know exactly what gel I should use. Now, to my eye, I've gotten, I mean, we're talking 25 years of experience, so I'm able to do that by eye and call out the right gel. But for somebody starting out, uh, this is what I did when I started uh, first to be a director of photography. I literally would have this swatch on uh, in my pocket and I would pull it out and I'm like, yeah, boy, they look off those HMIs. I'd meter it and I'm like, yeah, they're 500 Calvin different. All right, let's put eighth CTS up. What does that do? Oh, wow, that's perfect. Or you might say, let's go to quarter. Oh, that took it too much. It, it warmed it up a thousand degrees or a thousand Kelvin. So when these things, this is a quick go-to resource where it can take the experience and nullify it. And you use something as simple as a gel swatch that you can hold in your pocket and whip out and hold over the color meter sensor. And you can immediately start to know exactly what gel to put on without the your team putting gels up and then taking the, the reading and, oh my God, that's not right. And pulling it down and putting them another one. You can do it all right there. And you don't have to involve anyone but yourself. And then that way, when you know exactly what it is, you tell them, all right, this is going to be 8 CTS. They put it up and it matches perfectly. Uh, instead of you looking like the guy that doesn't know what the hell they're doing on set when you just can't seem to get the color in the right place. So this is something that you do. And it's a, a great secret recipe for success uh, is having these gel swatches with you on at all times. I love that. So, Francesco, I hope we've answered your question. And this is tricky. And honestly, a lot of it is time, knowledge, and experience. And I think that everybody can relate to this. I know I'm learning a ton <laughs> <laughs> so, with this podcast. So I wish you all a wonderful rest of April. Shane and I are very excited. April's always a fun month. It's our daughter's birthday. And we just, we really, um, I love April because it signifies that spring is here and on its way. And so until May. Thank you all for uh, coming along with us and submitting all these wonderful questions. And again, please uh, continue to submit these questions because this is the way that Lydia and I can both really reach out and uh, answer your questions very personally and very intimately and help you on your filmmaking journey. All right. Take care. Bye, everybody. What helps you become a better filmmaker? Knowledge, practice, consistency. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. If you want your questions answered, join us at shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.